This morning, as we continue in our study in the book of First John, I want to please turn, invite you to turn to First John in the New Testament, uh, chapter two. First John, chapter two, and we'll be reading verses fifteen through seventeen this morning. This passage is a well-known passage neglected by some, ignored by others, uh, misinterpreted by some, but yet it has very important truths for the believer. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, And the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now, in many places in the New Testament, we find that the life of the Christian is described as a life that is lived in tension. On the one hand, all true believers have had their lives renewed by the Holy Spirit. And this is made clear in a variety of ways in different biblical portions. Though this new life gives us the ability to resist sin, the tension of the Christian life resides in the fact that that presence of sin has not yet been eliminated completely. There is still the presence of sin. We have the ability to resist temptation, but at the same time, we will not do so perfectly. God has granted us a role to play in our perseverance, and so we need to be warned against falling into sin. The passage in 1 John 2, 15-17 that we look at this morning speaks to this need for warning. This passage deals with the sin of worldliness. Now, few problems have been more troublesome for believers down through the centuries than the problem of worldliness, the believer's enticement to be involved with this present world. And with the pervasive influence of modern media, attraction of the world is greater now than it has ever been, Daily, we're bombarded with uh, people telling us that we can't be happy unless we own the product that they are selling or adopt the lifestyle that they are pursuing. We thumb through magazines that entice us with beautiful homes, new cars, luxury items, or expensive vacations that can all be ours if we just get enough money or get into enough debt. There are plenty of credit card offers that will help us get hopelessly indebted. Many movies and other forms of entertainment employ filthy language and lewd humor. They glorify violence rather than peace. They glamorize lust and immorality rather than holiness. They instill feelings of discontentment and desire rather than thankfulness. And they promote worldviews 
that are antithetical to biblical Christianity. Now, that doesn't mean that the Christian should never watch movies or other forms of entertainment. But it does mean that we must be discriminating, that we must be discerning about the things we allow into our minds. We are called to renew our minds. Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 22 through 23 states that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now, these verses describe the deceitful lusts which seduce to sin and lead to corruption of the soul. The phrase lay aside implies a rupture from a former association. It implies a separation. It implies a departure, a cessation. So figuratively, the idea here is to cease doing what you were previously accustomed to doing. Stop doing it. Throw it it off like you would filthy, foul-smelling clothes. Be done with it. And the aorist tense here calls for a definitive action, a definite action. When we continually fill our minds with the filth of this world, we are being disobedient to the command, to this command, and we dishonor Christ. Now, Christian attempts to counter worldliness often have swung in unbalanced and unbiblical directions withdrawal from the world, along with extra rules to reign the flesh. For example, there are monastic movements with the practice of asceticism, with strict self-denial as a measure of personal and especially of spiritual discipline. There are those who form separatist and isolationist groups with the belief that by keeping themselves and their families isolated from the world. Within these groups, then they are protected from the evil influences of the world. Then there are many who follow legalistic, moralistic laws, attempts to counteract worldliness. Having rules and lists of what constitutes worldly behavior and avoiding anything on the list in an effort to combat worldliness. Concerning such man-made rules, Paul wrote in Colossians 2 and 20, If ye have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if ye were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees, such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use? in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Did you catch that? They're of no value against fleshly indulgence. They have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. 
Self-made religion, self-imposed worship is literally, literally will worship. These individuals practice a set of religious beliefs resulting from their own desire and initiative. This is a religion thought up by the person, by oneself, by one's own volition. He or she worships what seems best. This is self-made or do-it-yourself religion. How foolish for us or created men to establish our own ceremonial rites and call it true worship of the Creator. Now, these ascetic and legalistic systems have been developed as systems for spirituality. Some of the efforts of our fallen flesh in this area are very subtle, though. Even may have the appearance to be good works, having the appearance of religion. But these false standards of spirituality only serve to indulge the flesh. They only feed the flesh. Self-styled asceticism and legalism elevates the flesh and makes the person proud of his or her sacrifices and spiritual achievements. It takes away from Christ and it enslaves the person to fleshly pride. However, in spite of these misguided attempts to deal with worldliness, the love of the world is a real and significant problem for the Christian. We must not lose sight of that. And it seems we don't talk about this sin very much anymore, the sin of worldliness. See, in an effort to be relevant and reach our culture, there's the very real danger that we will become just like the culture and lose our distinctiveness. It actually seems that for many Christians, for many churches, the goal is actually to be as much like the world as possible because the belief is that that will attract people. Therefore, we have raised generations of Christians whose goal is to be as much as the, like the world as possible. So their affections are set on this world and the things of the world. They enjoy the world's entertainment. They immerse themselves in worldly values. And all of those things are what Scripture says we are not to do with this world. They enjoy the world's... I'm sorry. Many Christians today probably don't think that worldliness is a very serious sin. It's not a sin that is usually talked about very much. But the Apostle John here in this section we're looking at this morning begs to differ. Scripture says to love the world is to be God's enemy. And in our text this morning, John gives us an explicit command. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. Now, this is a familiar text. In this section, John gives only one command. Do not love the world nor the things of the world which indicates that this is his main emphasis. The subsequent verses provide the encouragement to obey the command. How does this passage then fit in, in the letter's context? Well, the message of 1 John is uh, clear as he 
makes a clarifying statement of it in chapter 5 and verse 13 of the epistle to the first John, when it says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So throughout the epistle, John presents tests of assurance for the Christian. You can know that you have eternal life in three different categories. Right doctrine, believing in Jesus Christ. Right living, living righteously. And right loving, loving one another. The purpose of the epistle is that you can have assurance of salvation. And the way you can have assurance is by a threefold test. Faith is the doctrinal test. God's children believe biblical teaching about Christ. Righteousness is the moral test. God's children live righteously. And love is the social test. God's children love one another. Now, these are three ways you can know that you have eternal life, and they appear throughout the epistle over and over in different sections of it. John has sort of a method where he kind of spirals back and forth through these three different types of tests. But 1 John 2, 15 through 17 that we're looking at this morning focuses on the moral test. God's children live righteously. God's children live in a way that shows they love the Father and not the world. They do God's will. Now, the first sentence in this passage is the main idea. Do not love the world or the things of the world. Everything else supports that main command. But you can't obey the command unless you know what it means to love the world. How do you know if you are loving the world or not? Therefore, it's important as we look at this passage to examine what John means by love here and what he means by world. Now, as we look at that first word, love, in, in verse 15, it is the, uh, in the Greek, uh, agapeo, we get, when we, get, we get agape, love, and it is throughout all of the New Testament. It speaks of a love which is based on choice, on evaluation, and exertion of one's will and action. Now, this quality of love is awakened by a sense of value in the object, which causes one to prize it. In this case, the one that loves the world prizes the evil world system. It has a sense to cherish, to have affection for, to take pleasure in. So here, it means to cherish or have affection. So John is saying, do not cherish the world. Do not have affection for the world. Do not take pleasure in the world. John asserts here that loving the Father and loving the world are mutually exclusive. Notice, he says, do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't love both simultaneously. Now, what does the word world mean here? Now, world throughout the New Testament is used in three different senses. It, it's used in some places to refer to the created world, to the material world around us. It is used in places to refer to the world of humanity in terms of persons and such. But it is also used 
as it is used in this passage here in a different sense. The word is the word cosmos. It means essentially something that is well arranged, that which has order, something that's arranged harmoniously. Cosmos refers to an ordered system or a system where order prevails. By the way, uh, the word cosmetics has as its root the word cosmos. However, cosmos is used here in this passage in its moral and ethical sense to describe all that is opposed to God. In other words, the world here in 1 John 15 through 17 does not refer to the earth or even to its people, but rather to the world as a system with its possessions, its possessions, its pleasures, all radically and alienated against God. The system of human existence in the many aspects that we see it reflected throughout the world. The idea here is of the world of men <clears throat> in rebellion against God and therefore characterized by all that is in opposition to God. This is what we might call the world system, the system of the world. And, of course, that system is governed by Satan. It involves the world's values, its pleasures, its pastimes, its aspirations. And John says of this world that the world lies in the grip of the evil one. In chapter, in chapter 5 and verse 19, John says, We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, Satan. The world, of course, rejected Jesus when he came. John 1.10, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 10, states, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And then the world does not know him and does not know us. First John chapter 3 and verse 1 states, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. And such we are, for this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. And consequently, the world does not know and therefore also hates his followers. And the Lord Jesus himself in John 15, 18 through 19 said, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. It is in this sense that John speaks of the world in the passage that we have before us this morning. The world and everything that belongs to it appears as that which is hostile to God. So how do we know that that's what world means in this passage? Well, if you look at verse 16, you see that here it specifies what all that is in the world is. And what is that? It's the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. This world is hostile to God. It is anti-God. So the command, do not love the world, means do not take pleasure in the anti-God culture that permeates the fallen world. 
Do not take pleasure in worldly ways of thinking. Do not take pleasure in worldly ways of acting. Now, in relation, uh, there are some people see a conflict here because uh, people say, well, John 3.16 says that God so loved the world, but yet here, First John is, John is telling us, do not love the world. But the word world means different in those two statements. In John 3.16, God so loved the world means that God loved humanity in general. When God loves the world, he unselfishly has affection for humanity in general. He has an unselfish saving stance toward humanity in general, people who are rebelling against their creator. But in our passage in John, 1 John 2.15, <clears throat> do not love the world means that we must not have affection for the anti-God system that permeates this fallen world. We must not take pleasure in worldly ways of thinking and acting. When we love the world, we selflessly have affection for the anti-God Satan culture that permeates this fallen world. Now, this text clearly outlines the main points of vulnerability at which Satan aims his attacks against all Christians. Because as we look at the passage, we have a brief survey of the three biggest pitfalls the world has to offer. We often speak of Christian warfare as a battle against three enemies, right? We, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And here in this text, we see how those enemies work together. In this passage, John is writing about the, the world and how we are not to love the world. But notice something interesting here. When he enumerates the specifics of the worldliness, what he actually lists are three sinful tendencies of our own corrupt and dwelling sinfulness. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These sinful tendencies of our own corrupt indwelling sinfulness, what scripture calls the flesh, the remaining flesh in the believer. That is the sinfulness of sin. It is residual even in the redeemed and at times it takes us captive. Though you are new creation with all the new desires and impulses and longings after holiness, there's still a conflict. There's still that tension. The testimony of the believer is that there is within him a righteous impulse. There was a holy longing. There's a desire after God. There's a love of God and a love of his word and a love of his truth and a desire to live by and think like it. But there's also something else there, and that is the presence of sin. That's there, too. See, the redeemed soul resides in a body of flesh that is still the beachhead for sin in our lives. And it can be given to unholy thoughts and longings. It is that powerful force of sin within our mortal bodies that tempts and lures us to do evil. When we succumb to the impulses of the fleshly mind, our mortal bodies again become instruments of sin. They become instruments of unrighteousness. 
That's why we find in this passage that John enumerates the specifics of worldliness in verse 16. And there, what he actually lists are the three sinful tendencies of our own corrupt, indwelling sinfulness. Notice they are not externals, but they are our internal desires. And these three danger zones are the ones where Satan aims his temptations. You see, every temptation fits one of these categories. The world, the flesh, and the devil are in collusion with each other, conspiring to tempt and corrupt us. And the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life are where Satan aims its arrows. Now, this helps us to clarify and identify spiritual warfare. Everything that could possibly trip us up is put in these three categories. Now, we love to blame the world or the devil when we do wrong, don't we? But there is never a time, really, when Satan or the world can make us sin. Unless our own fleshly depravity yields and cooperates with the world and the devil. So when John identifies here all that is in the world in this passage, what it gives us are the sinful tendencies of our own flesh. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Now let's look at the word lust there. It's an interesting word that is used throughout the New Testament. The Greek word is epithumia. And it depicts a desire, a craving, a longing, a lust. Now throughout the in scripture is mostly used for sinful desires, but it is sometimes used for good desires. For example, in Philippians 1.23, Paul says, But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. That word there, desire, is the same word, epithemium. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verse 17, he says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, we're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Again, that same word. And you notice in the, these two passages, the desire is, is a good desire, not a sinful desire. But in most places in the New Testament, we find this word identified with fleshly desires. In Mark four nineteen, it says, But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of richness and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The desires for other things, that's the sinful desire. Galatians 5.16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. It's the same sense there. Romans 6.12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. Notice that the word sometimes is translated as desire, sometimes is translated as lust, as in our passage in 1 John. And then Romans 13 and 14 states, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. That same word. James chapter 1 and verses 14 through 15 is an important passage in regard to this subject that we're talking about. It makes a similar point as 1 John 15, uh, 2, 15 through 17. 
that we don't sin because of the assault of sin against us, but because of our own lust or desire. <clears throat> this is James 1, 14 through 15. But each one is tempted when he is carried, sometimes they say dragged, away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now, John MacArthur has some instructive comments about this passage. He says, this term, dragged away or carried away, comes from hunting. It is used of luring an animal into a trap. A trap is baited, and the animal is lured into the trap. The verb itself means to be drawn by an inward power. It means to be led, to be compelled, to be lured into the trap, to be baited and caught. Now, the second term there, enticed, is a fishing term. The word means literally to capture or catch, and its literal use was to catch a fish with bait. Bait a hook and catch the fish. Now, every person is tempted when the hook is baited or the trap is baited, and we are lured away, compelled, dragged away, beguiled away by what? By our own lust. The one being tempted is being lured deceptively and then the hook and then hooked and trapped in sin. Just think about that imagery. The reason that animals are baited and trapped and fish are baited and hooked is because the bait looks good. It looks attractive. It looks inviting. And all that they see is the bait. And instead of the anticipated pleasure when they grab the bait comes the pain of capture and death. And so it is with temptation. It dangles out there and promises a tasty indulgence. It promises a satisfying morsel. It promises great pleasure, fun, reward, and it lures lures the victim into its trap and the hook in a deadly way. But notice, what pulls us so strongly to the bait? Is it Satan? Is it the world? No. Satan baits the hook and the world baits the hook. But what pulls us to the hook, what pulls us to the trap, is our lust. Notice it says, he is dragged away and enticed by his own lust. His own Interesting statement. This emphasizes that we're not talking about some generic term that everyone possesses commonly with everyone else in the same way. We all possess the lust, but in different ways. Each individual has his own particular bent of lust, which is really the thing that lures him or her to the bait. And that word used here is the same word that we're looking at in First John, the word epithumia for lust. It means the desire of the soul. It's the strong passion of the soul. The problem is our temptability is related to our indwelling sin, which is related to our flesh. The problem is that even though we have been redeemed and even though we have received a new nature, and even though we are created in Christ Jesus, we still have an enemy within And it is passion. It is that longing to be satisfied 
with something which in and of itself is maybe a good thing. In fact, most all lust is simply God's good gifts twisted and perverted. God, for example, gives us the blessing of sleep and some people lust after it until they become indolent, lazy sluggards. God has given us the benefit of clothing to cover our bodies and keep us warm. And for some people, it becomes an absolutely consuming lust. It is wonderful that God has given us the gift of shelter from the elements, but that wonderful reality of privacy and the ability to conduct our affairs in some form of privacy, but those, for some people, they become consuming idolatry, a matter of a fetish. There's nothing wrong with thirst, but some drink themselves into the gutter. There's nothing wrong with food, but some people become gluttonous. Our needs, there's nothing wrong with our needs supply, but it's easy to pervert your needs and then have lust for much beyond what your needs are. Sex is given by God as a wonderful, glorious gift, when, but it's perverted and sought for beyond the will of God. So it becomes the baited hook, the trap, and who, for the person who is driven by lust for those things. So it is the lust for those things. Now, in regard to temptation, this is a significant passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 13, which is encouraging. It says, well-known passage, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to men. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. In this, word, in, in this verse, temptation is the first word of the Greek for emphasis, and it refers not only to temptation, but to trials and testings. Now, some versions, in fact, translate it as a test and others as temptation, which is understandable in view of the fact that in every test that God's allowed, there's always, it always comes with it the potential that we might allow it to become a temptation to sin. God never tempts us to sin. Scripture is clear on that. But our fallen flesh processes the test God allows and says, in essence, I think I will use this as an opportunity to sin. We're always responsible for how we choose to respond. Don't blame God, other people, circumstances, if you sin when tested. So when Satan is successful in tempting us, invariably it is because we yield. Ultimately, it's our fault. It's, it's our fault. It's the fault of our flesh. We can't escape the blame for sin, claiming it was Satan or the world, rather than our own fleshliness that drove us to sin. Now, the world, the flesh, and the devil all work together to entice us, but the flesh is what ultimately leads us to sin. We would all like to believe that our struggle with sin is mainly due to external enemies or causes. We don't like to take the blame ourselves, but this passage in 1 John reveals that even our struggle with the world is incited by inordinate desires that come from where? From ourselves. 
All that is in the world is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. Neither the world nor the devil could ever take advantage of us if our own flesh didn't cooperate. Those are all sinful tendencies that come from inside us. We ourselves are to blame when inordinate worldly affections crowd out what should be a pure love for God and the things of God. Now, in this passage, we find some conclusions as to why we should not love the world. One, we should not love the world because love for the world is incompatible with love for God. Verse 15, if anyone loved the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Love for this world is incompatible with love for God. James chapter 4 and verse 4 has a very strong admonition regarding this. It says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is a strong admonition by James. He's writing to Hebrew Christians who would be very familiar with the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, we find many references to spiritual adultery by the people of Israel. Now, spiritual adultery is giving to the world that love, giving to the world that devotion, that time and strength which the Lord alone is entitled to. Listen to the words of J.C. Ryle on this subject. He says, all loving of the world and all fellowship with it is unfaithfulness to him who has so loved us. And in the measure in which loving of the world is followed, it proves us in that measure to be untrue to him. It is spiritually adultery. And as such, it will be counted to the sore loss of him who indulges in the friendship of the world. We simply cannot have an affection for the world and for God at the same time. Luke sixteen thirteen says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't love God and love the system of evil that opposes him. The two loves are incompatible. Secondly, we find in this passage that we should not love the world because the evil in the world is not from God. Verse 16, for all that is in the world and that is not from the Father, but is from the world. Important principle that evil is not from God. Evil is active in the world that opposes God. God is sovereign over the universe and over those that do evil. And thus he works out his will and purpose. That is why Joseph could say to his brothers who had acted wickedly towards him in Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. But God is neither the source nor the author of evil. When God finishes creation and says in Genesis 1, 31 that he says, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was no sin. The creation was later marred by the sin of his creatures, but God is not the source of that sin. 
So the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life are not of the Father, they are of the world. And then thirdly, we should not love the world because the world is transitory, but God's children are eternal. Look at verse 17. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. This world and its evil system is temporary. It's transient. It's passing away. We are to set our affections on temporary. We are not to set our affections on temporary things. Those who attach their affections to this world will be destroyed. This world is transient. It's passing away. What gain is there to attach our affections to it and lose our souls? There's much more to say about this passage, and Lord willing, we'll continue next week. I just want to finish with, on January 8, 1956, at the age of 28, missionary Jim Elliott and four other missionaries were killed during Operation Auca in an attempt to evangelize the Horoni people of Ecuador. Several years before that, before that fateful day, Jim Elliott had written in his personal journal the following. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The Lord Jesus said in Mark 8.36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? May the Lord help us to have an eternal perspective in our love of him 